Encounter Church. That was enough, right? I mean, we're done. We pretty much got the point. We're good. We can go home. I watched the Super Bowl and went it out. So I'm glad you're here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor at Encounter Church. I get the privilege of being a part of this really special team and what God's doing here in this place and space with these people. And today we're kicking off a new series. If you're new to Encounter today, uh, what we do is every month we grab one of the kind of uh, core struggles or some breakthrough type of teaching or truth. And over the course of that month, we walk through that topic, that idea, and look at uh, the various passages in the Bible that God speaks to and is guiding us through it. And so this month, uh, in a month typically focused on relationships, instead of this being uh, kind of a Valentine's oriented, like, oh, uh, we wanted to just say, you know what, let's get real with relationships. Let's talk about how to deal with those people who suck the life out of you, right? And chances are you all have them. If you don't have them, you might be them. And so this is a series that's going to be helpful no matter who you are, where you are in your journey. Uh, two weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a text message and said, what kind of people do you have up there? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I opened up uh, my text message and there is this crazy story. Uh, these two guys get in a wreck on the turnpike, and in the midst of this verbal alter- altercation, after I have this fender bender, it starts to escalate, and very quickly what happens is one of the men in his SUV is gunning it towards the other man who then jumps onto the hood of the car, hangs onto the top of the hood, and during rush hour traffic, gets up for the course of the next three miles, passes 60 miles per hour at certain points, trying to, going back and forth to shake the man who is holding onto the hood of his car off of the car. This is really happening. You can watch the video. I mean, two grown men, 165, 137, and they're trying to shake the other one off the car going 60 miles per hour down the turnpike. And and I was sitting there reading that story, and I'm like, you know what? I bet neither one of those guys woke up that morning saying, you know what? It's Friday. What I really hope to do, I hope I get to capture a 67-year-old and get him stuck on my hood and then proceed to shake him off a little bit while driving 60 miles per hour. And I'm sure the 67-year-old guy, 65-year-old guy woke up and said, man, I really hope I end up on the top of someone's hood going down the turnpike holding on for dear life. That'll be a good day for me, right? Neither one of them woke up that day thinking this is what I want to do today. But you know what? I think what happens is when two drained people meet each other, this is what what happens when you're already running on fumes and you meet someone else running on fumes it doesn't take much for that to turn into an explosion and I think for some of us it may not play out on the turnpike but it does play out over the kitchen table it does play out over the cubicle at work where we come in and we're drained and then we bump up against that um, another immovable force of someone who else is drained and we refuse to give in And in the course of this series, we want to talk about how do you love, how do you deal with those people who suck the life out of you. But it would be unfair if I jumped straight into that. We'll, We'll kick that off next week because I think what's most important is the assumption underneath this, which is that when someone shows up who is a relational vampire, who is sucking the life out of you, you actually have to have something to begin with. Because if you're already drained and you meet a relational vampire, what will probably happen will be an explosion. And so today I want to look at a moment in the life of Jesus, a moment that I think is really telling because it shows us, demonstrates for us a model for how we can live lives that have something in it 
already so that when we do encounter those relational vampires, we actually have margin that can take the hit and still practice and respond with wisdom that we want to share with you over the next three weeks. And I think Jesus is a fitting model, even if you're here today and you're not quite sure what you believe about Jesus. I think he's a fitting model because Jesus dealt with some things that you and I can relate to. In fact, I want to take you to just a little four-verse section in the book of Luke. Jason referenced our app earlier that we've created for you that's free. It already has this already loaded for you in the message notes. But what's important is to realize that the the Bible, when I say the book of Luke, the Bible is actually a two-volume set. There is the Old Testament, which was the Jewish scriptures, um, which was the base um, of the Christian faith, because the Jewish scriptures had two promises central to them, the promised land and the promised one. And a bulk of the Old Testament focuses on the promised land and the giving of the promised one promise, where the New Testament focuses on the belief that Jesus is that promised one alluded to in the Old Testament. So the Bible is two volumes, volume one, Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, volume two, the New Testament, which centers on Jesus and the church that's formed or the people that's formed out of his teaching. And the the book of the the kind of volume, the New Testament opens with four biographies about Jesus's life. They're written for different audiences, so they all have different approaches. It would be like reading CNN and USA Today and the New York Times and the Washington post story, they would all have a slightly different bent because they're all written for different audiences. And this is what happens in uh, the four biographies on the life of Jesus. They all have a different audience that was originally written to. And Luke is one of those writers. That's why the third book is called Luke. It's named after him. Luke was a brilliant, brilliant medical doctor turned researcher historian. Um, For those who um, have kind of spent time studying Luke in the original language that was written, which was Greek, what you notice in the book of Luke versus the other New Testament um, letters and books is that Luke was clearly well-educated. His his Greek, his grammar, his syntax, the way he would use certain words and certain uh, descriptions, it was clear that Luke was a really sharp, sharp researcher with an eye to detail. And it comes out, in fact, in this story, it comes out in the way that he tells this moment from Jesus' life. So in Luke 5, this is how we step into Jesus' life. He's beginning to grow in popularity. He's a rabbi. He's specifically an itinerant rabbi, which means he's traveling. He's a traveling speaker. This is before TED Talks and YouTube. So if you wanted people to hear your message, you had to travel to them. They couldn't click up on a website and see you. So Jesus is doing this. He's traveling around. He's speaking. He's teaching. And it says in verse 12 of chapter 5, while Jesus it was in one of those towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. You have to understand leprosy in this day and age is not a sickness that you've probably ever seen, but leprosy in this day and age is an incredibly um, kind of life-altering sickness. These people were banished from community, and so most of them lived outside the cities and towns. They lived in uh, kind of makeshift uh, kind of tent sheds and shacks and They were pretty much shunned by all the healthy people that lived inside of towns. They reeked, you could smell them. Uh, Sometimes if the wind was blowing from a mile away, it was a devastating sickness that ravaged your life. And this guy comes along and he hears about Jesus. And so when he shows up in verse 13, it says, well, when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So he comes and claps in front of Jesus and Jesus responds by reaching out his hand, touching the man and says, I'm willing. And he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to you. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And so what happens is Jesus heals this man with leprosy. That's a very public thing, right? I mean, someone with leprosy was very clearly uh, kind of noticeable. And so here's this man who's now healed. People, people see it. It's not a secret. Well, Jesus had, had asked him to go and travel out of the way, and this would have resulted in the man being gone for a few weeks from where he is. But because the man doesn't go, he stays, everyone starts talking about Jesus. Everyone's commenting, not just about what Jesus is saying, but, hey, did you, did you, see, did you see John? John John's, John's been healed. He says it was Jesus that did it to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to have a medical procedure done, but when you make a phone call, Typically, you hear, oh, yeah, we're booked through March 2020, right? Now, this is one of the greatest regions in the entire world for medicine, for research. We have the best hospitals, the best doctors. Some of them are in this room, right? We have phenomenal medical teaching universities. And yet, in this place, it can sometimes still take you weeks, if not months, to get an appointment. We have CVS on every corner, literally, right? We have access to medicines. Like, we live in a day and age that can almost cause us to miss the weight and the pressure that Jesus would have felt. He was the only physician. Luke appreciates this. Throughout the book of Luke, Luke will make comments about diseases. He'll, he'll use a medical term where none of the other biographers comment. Luke has a special appreciation for Jesus because Luke is a medical doctor. And medicine in that day, WebMD is far better. Right? I mean, you get on WebMD and you start searching and then a few minutes later, I'm convinced I'm going through menopause. Right? Like, that was still better than what they are walking through. In this day and age, the average life expectancy is around 40. About half the age of it is today. And the reason why is because most sicknesses, sicknesses that you and I could easily be treated for, procedures that you and I could easily have, were often tragic, fatal diagnoses for these people. And so here's Jesus, the only person on planet Earth who can actually heal, who can actually restore, who can actually cure. Imagine your schedule if you're him. People are waiting for you when you wake up. People are there when you walk outside. People have their children. I mean, a few stories later, somebody will literally break a hole through the roof to get, some, to get one of their friends in because it's so crowded inside the house where Jesus is teaching. Jesus was a man who was constantly on demand. His schedule was always being pressured and pushed into. And rightfully so. He could transform lives. He could heal. And so I think in some ways he is the perfect case example for us because he knows what it's like to live with the pressures and constant demands. And for some of us, we understand what constant demand looks like. We live in a day and an age, right? We still have the same amount of time that humans have always had, but yet we 
we rarely ever leave the workplaces that we work in because we have these things that are smartphones that travel with us and our email, right? It used to be if you wanted something done, you would write it with a physical pen and then you would stick it in your mailbox and then it would travel for days to the intended recipient. Now, if you want to ask someone um, to get something done, you just shoot a little line and instantly it buzzes in their pocket. We live in a day and age where it's hard to escape work. It's hard to escape the constant pressures. It's hard to escape the constant demands of our schedules. We're constantly reminded in social media of what we don't have, the cool places we don't go, the, the, the excess weight that we have not lost, right? I mean, it's really quick just to scroll through. I mean, we live with fear of missing out all the time. If you're a teenager and you're going through your things, your friends on Snapchat and Instagram, all the cool places, all the cool things. And you're sitting there bored just looking at their awesome life, right? I mean, we live in a day and an age where even if it's not real pressure, it always feels real. And yet Jesus, dealing with the weight of the world on his back, does something that I want to teach you. And to, to kind of make it quick and to make it clear, I've created an acrostic. Because in verse 16, we actually see this really interesting detail. It says, but. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, remember, Luke is really brilliant. And so the reason you see, but Jesus often withdrew was because Luke's verb tense there uh, implied that this was not just a one time. This wasn't a sporadic stop because Jesus was about to crash because of the weight of his schedule, because Jesus was so drained. This was a Greek verb that implied he's regularly doing this. This is a habit. This is a ritual. It says Jesus often withdrew. And I want to teach you what Jesus did because this is a moment. One of the things that Luke would do in his writing um, to serve, to kind of save on ink and the papyrus that they would write on or the type of uh, parchment that they would use, all this is really valuable. And so uh, ancient writers would oftentimes employ these, uh, these kind of mechanisms. They would write a sentence out, and the sentence would be kind of a catch-all. They were like, oh, I'm not going to repeat everything that I said over there or what I'm going to repeat over here. Because this is all happening, ongoing, and it's regular. So just remember, um, this, is, this, is, this keeps going while the other things are happening too. And so Luke is trying to communicate, okay, in the midst of Jesus' hectic schedule, in the midst of Jesus' demand, and him becoming an, an, an international success, and him becoming one of the biggest itinerant preachers and speakers in a man's life who would speak to tens of thousands of people when most people would never travel more than 100 miles over the course of their entire life. Here's Jesus and his message being spread over the entire Roman Empire. I, want you to rem I just want you to remember in the back of your mind that he often withdrew to lonely places and pray. And so what Jesus did was he rested. And this is the acrostic, R-E-S-T. The first thing is that Jesus regularly, regularly stepped back from the chaos to refuel. And this is really important. In fact, everything I'm going to say today is going to seem, seem really simple. It's not an issue of knowing, it's an issue of doing for most of us. Jesus regularly took a step back with all the demands, and every time he took a step back, it meant that somebody wasn't going to get healed. It meant someone wasn't going to be proclaimed or preached to. There were real implications from Jesus' decision to step back. But Jesus regularly would step back. He would slow down. 
wasn't sporadic. It wasn't when he was about to crash. This was something that he did regularly. We see that we know he did it regularly every single week because that was the ritual of first century um, Jewish men and women to take what was a gift that God had given them called the Sabbath. And this is something that many of us don't realize that even when you hear the word Ten Commandments, oftentimes, especially if you grew up in a context where uh, you were constantly beat over your head all the things you shouldn't do, right? The Ten Commandments sounds like a list of don't do's. We forget that in the midst of the Ten Commandments, God even said to his people, oh, by the way, I want you to enjoy life. Take a day off every single week and rest. That was a gift that God gave humanity, was a reminder that sometimes we need to take a step back and enjoy life, and and connect with each other, and to have that moment, like rest regularly. And so weekly, I would encourage you, have that regular rhythm of stepping back. But I would even say that because of our constant smartphones, that for some of us, it may be helpful to have daily rhythms of stopping and resting. When I walk into my house in the evening, one of the things that I mentally do mentally do is I will place my phone out of the way and I shut down. I don't check my email because I don't want, I don't want to read an email that ramps my mind up and ha- causes me having trouble to sleep at night. And so for me, not for you, but for me, I recognize for me to be recharged even daily, I have to have a point where technology gets shut off. When we sit at the dinner table, you will not find an electronic device there. We have conversation. We ask each other questions. We recognize that this is a, a, even if it feels mundane, this is a really big moment in our lives because I only have so many meals that I get with my seven-year-old, and then she's gone. And so every meal that I get with my seven-year-old where I get to ask her about her life and how she was shaped that day with the positive and the negative experiences is sand glass, is one of those like hourglasses just ticking away. And, and that helps me. It, it allows me to go to bed and my mind's not racing. I, I fall asleep. And so for you, I don't know, maybe today one of the things that you need to implement even as we get started in this REST is just carving out Sometime. Don't put the phone beside the bed. Don't wake up in the morning and the first thing you check is the notifications and all the things that are waiting for you when you get there. It'll be okay. When you get there, it'll be waiting for you. But to protect those sacred moments where your soul has breathing room, where you can be recharged, is critical. And to take a day off and not feel guilty about it. If Jesus, God in flesh, took time away regularly, I think you and I can have permission to do it too. But it doesn't just stop there. This is, remember, a kind of a tool that Luke will use. So when you scan the book of Luke and you go to the other various biographies on the life of Jesus, what you'll find is that this regular habit, Jesus didn't always just sit alone in silence not doing anything. He would oftentimes do other things. And that's where the E, the S, and the T come in. The E, one of the frequent things that we notice that Jesus does when he steps back is he does not just step back alone. He will step to lonely places. He goes to places where the crowds are not there. But he steps back to these places and he's not lonely because he's engaged relationally with others. He'll, you'll see him throughout the biographies, these four gospels, where he's inviting three or two or 12 of his closest followers to come with him. 
And this engaging regularly is the E. It's not just this regular rhythm of stopping. It's engaging relationally. Jesus recognized that we were social creatures. In fact, in sociological literature, we're actually a special class of social species. We're ultra, ultra social species. We really require a we for us to flourish. And when Jesus would step back, he would have that community of people. Sometimes he was teaching and talking with them, but we often kind of miss those moments where Jesus would step back, like in John 17, he steps back, and he, he's on the eve of his death. He's about to get arrested. Judas has betrayed him, and what does he do? He says, hey, you three, come with me. It's really hard. I need you with me. He's like, come pray with me in the garden. And he invites three of his followers to come with him. Why? Because he's overwhelmed, and he's being vulnerable. And he shares with them what his struggle is and what he's walking through and what's about to happen. Jesus practices relational engagement. And this is one of those things that I think, while we all know, the reality is that one of the major health epidemics in our nation, this is crazy, is loneliness. Loneliness. Just recently, one of the Surgeon Generals commented that one of the public health epidemics in our nation is loneliness. The Boston Globe picked up on this, I think, a couple years ago, where they wrote an article about the loneliness, quiet struggle of 40-year-old men, that the biggest health struggle for 40-year-old men is loneliness. Because what happens is for all of us, we get overscheduled, we have so much on our plates, and we have to start picking and choosing and pushing things away and, and sliding things off the table. And what ends up happening is one of the things that gets slid off the table is relationships. Because relationships require time. Relationships require energy. And we just don't have any of it. And if you're fascinated, you walk up to after me, and I'll, I'll kind of talk you through these different studies. But what's fascinating is that loneliness is not just a mental agony and pain. It has physical ramifications, too. And that what's been documented in numerous different studies is both quantitatively and qualitatively, there are correlated negative effects in our lives when we live lives that are isolated and plagued with loneliness. You were made to be a part of a we. And you have to have people in your life where you feel safe enough to be vulnerable, to share what you're walking through, to be able to navigate those hard moments. And so here's a, a kind of a question before we move on to the next one. Do you have someone in your life that knows the struggles that you're going through? Are there people in your life who know the heavy weight and the quiet pain that you may be finding yourself in the midst of? If not, then you're missing out on what Jesus intended for you to have and what he modeled for us to have. Because there is something powerful when you sit across the table from someone who loves you and knows you, and they hear your heart's deepest cry, and they still believe the best for you. And they still believe the best is still in you. I have friends who know the worst about me and yet still believe the best is still in me, waiting to come out. And that's life-giving. That's powerful. It's not fair to me to put all of that on my wife. She can't handle the load of being my everything. I know it makes a great love song to say, I want to be your everything, right? I know that makes a great love song. But the reality is, is it's a horrible lifestyle. 
Because your spouse is not meant to be your everything. And even if you're single and you're believing the idea that one day I'm going to get that person and that person's going to be my everything, they will never be your everything. Life was never intended to rest on one person alone. And that's why one of the things that we did is we have groups here. Is we believe that everyone should be surrounded by someone who believes the best about them, even in the midst of knowing the worst about them. That we should have a support structure. We should have an encouragement, an encouragement structure. And so we created groups for that reason. They weren't created to be creepy. They weren't created to show up at the house and like you only like share the worst things about you. It was meant to be normal. It was meant to be fun. It was meant to be engaging, but it was also meant to be encouraging. And so that's why our groups, we, we circle up each week and we talk about the message because we all have that in common. We all heard the message and we just walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And people are free to share what they want to share. But the reality is, is that you at least have an environment where you can show up and know that people there are believing and rooting for the best. Because we do believe at Encounter Church that we're better together. And you don't have to have that in an Encounter Church group, but you do need to have that in your life. And so that's why we created them, because we recognize not everyone has that. So let's create an environment where that can flow. But R and E is not enough. One of the things that we see Jesus do that's actually kind of counterintuitive, I actually wrestled with this when I was processing through this message, is that Jesus doesn't just regularly step back. He doesn't just also engage relationally. Sometimes when he would step back, he would actually serve. He would invest. He would pour out, and which seems a little strange. We're saying in order to stop from being drained, you need to pull back a little bit. You need to connect relationally. But sometimes in order for Jesus to stop from being drained, he would actually pour out. What's fascinating is I came across a study a few years ago. Um, Adam Grant in his book, Givers and Takers, actually, Give and Take, actually kind of popularized this concept. Um, and, and introduced it into kind of popular culture. But Jesus was already doing this and that there's this subtlety that there are ways of being recharged even when you pour out. But the key is that you have to choose to do so. You have to intentionally, it's, it's something that you decide. It's not something that you're obligated to do. It's not something that you have to do. It's something that you choose to do. And Jesus, when he would step back, sometimes he would choose to do this with his disciples. And just in case, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, okay, well, that was Jesus. And let's just be real. Jesus gets a pass on a lot of things because he's Jesus. I want to show you a story, a really brief story that I, I would prefer you to see the video because they do it better than what I can say. But it's a local, it's a church. Uh, the pastor and the team there is a, is a mentor to us. And they recorded this video and captured the story that I think brilliantly summarizes what Jesus was modeling for us. Let's watch. I love to draw. I came from a family of engineers and designers and builders. My father was an architect, so I really suppose it was in my DNA. When I was in elementary school, I used to sit in back of the class and sketch, make doodles, and sell them to the other kids. It was just an outlet for me. It was a creative outlet. I loved it. I still do. Every single day is completely different. A day on the construction site is, is actually one of my favorite days because, again, you get to go out and see your handiwork in the third dimension. I think the most satisfying thing about it is it's tangible. So you, that idea that you had at 2 o'clock in the morning, 
than to go out and see that a year or two later, be able to touch it and feel it and remember that whole thought that you had. And that's my favorite part, to smell the dirt, smell the concrete, see all the heavy equipment moving around. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have a huge passion for architecture. I love what I do. I look forward to getting up in the morning and going to work. But after attending North Point for a few years, I knew I needed to step up and volunteer in some capacity. And Andy preached one Sunday about needing men to step up and volunteer. And I was thinking, maybe I can go serve in the parking lot, maybe I can run a camera, maybe I can do a lot of kind of masculine type things. But I remember looking at the little piece of paper that was in the bulletin, and I just felt compelled to sign up for Upstreet, more specifically for special needs. I really don't want to be defined by drawing lines on a piece of paper. I really think it's more important to be defined by drawing lines between children's hearts and their Heavenly Father. I walked in the first Sunday and realized I have no skill set to deal with special needs children. But it's interesting when you take that first step and you reach out and you say to God, I can't do this, that he'll reach back and pull your hand and tell you, I can do this. Look, I'm just like every other guy. I lay in bed at night, I think about bills, am I being a good husband, am I being a good parent? But I found so much grace in that classroom just to walk in and love on those kids. And I find every Sunday I walk out and I just don't have a care in the world. I think being a volunteer is something that you kind of need to do yourself. My wife says that every grown man has a five-year-old that resides deep inside of them. And it's true. And you get to be a five-year-old for an hour a week. It's great. All of us want to feel some sense of purpose. And for me, it's difficult just to go back to a normal everyday Sunday once you've tasted purpose. I mean, face it, life is difficult. But to come into Upstreet on Sunday morning and see those kids and their smiles and see all the volunteers, you just can't beat it. ...captures for us what Jesus was modeling. That there's something strangely, counterintuitively recharging about pouring out intentionally. And that what Tom is experienced every single week in that church in their elementary area, many of us, some are in this room, in fact, experience that every single week at Encounter Church. They work and serve in our family areas, and they're the reason that you walk in this room and you, you don't even think about your kids. You're not even wondering what they're doing. You just know that in seven minutes when you walk out of this room, they're going to be really excited and they're going to love whatever they did that day, and they're going to have way too much paper to take home with you. And, and it's an, an incredibly encouraging and inspiring thing. And the reason why is because those leaders have discovered what Tom discovered and what Jesus alluded to is that there is something that refuels you even as you pour out. That's why when we created our family environment spaces here, we said we wanted to create those kind of environments where people would come and in the midst of being poured out where they're loving and serving and pointing and being that physical kind of manifestation of God's love that they would leave excited. And so in order to do that, for those people who work in our family area, they don't have to go through the week purchasing supplies. They don't have to sit at home on their kitchen table and cut out little tiny figurines of Bible characters. They, they show up and it's already ready for them. They don't have to prepare a lesson. The lesson's already been prepared. They, they get emailed the lesson. They show up and say, hey, here's the lesson. Here's what we're going to do today. And the reason that we do all of that is because we believe that if we create the right environments, that people can be refueled even as they pour out. 
And for some of you in this room, maybe you've never considered yourself someone who would be good with kids. Maybe you consider yourself someone like Tom. You're far more comfortable in certain arenas and environments and the ones where people aren't involved as much. But I'm telling you that for some of us, it might not be the R or the E, but it could be the S for you today that makes the difference. And if you chose to to explore that, you wouldn't have to show up every single week. Some of our leaders do because they love it that much. But most of our leaders, it's one or two weeks out of the course of a month that they give. But what they find in the midst of that is that they are far, far fuller at the end of their week because of that not in spite of it. And if you're interested in learning more, kind of finding out all the various ways that you can serve from babies to preschoolers to elementary and even to students on Sunday night, I would encourage you in, in, in the Encounter Church app and starting point, there's a way to highlight kind of to, it says serve, interested in serving. You click on that form and one of our team members will be in touch with you. No pressure, no pull. Like we're not, we don't get commission points on this. We want to create spaces where kids see God's love. And so we want to share more about that. But for some of us, even if you're not sure about the church thing, the reality is, is what surveys, what studies, what our own life experiences, what Tom experienced, what Jesus modeled is that for those who serve regularly, what they find over the course of their life is both qualitative and quantitatively, their life is better. But RES, no matter where you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you, you can do that. But there's one other, the T. And I think the T, if I'm being honest with you, the T is the most powerful one. It's the one that for most of us, we may not instantly connect with, or for some of us, we may not even be comfortable with, but is the one that has the most power and us being and finding that refueling. It, it, it sustained Jesus through three years of intense public pressure and scrutiny and success. And it was this last one. It's talking to God, right? It says that he withdrew the lonely places. He'd take a step back, engage relationally, serve, and that he prayed. He had a connection with God. And this connection with God allowed him to step into those moments, no matter what those moments held, and to have the strength. But out of fairness, I realize this is Jesus, okay? And so you're like, well, Jesus, of course, he had a really good prayer life. He's Jesus, right? Like, in every moment of his life, he was perfect. So, like, we, you know, while we respect Mary, Mary didn't have a hard parenting job with Jesus because he always listened the first time, right? She never had to repeat herself. He's Jesus. He's an exemption. And so instead of focusing on Jesus, let me take you to another guy, the part of the story that maybe you missed some of the details because Luke hid them really well. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell to, the, he fell to his face on the ground and he begged him. Actually, what the leper does isn't too far off from what prayer looks like. So first of all, Luke's a doctor, and that's why you see the phrase covered with leprosy. That there's actually a very specific medical term Luke is using in this phrase. He's trying to highlight for the readers who are not there that because leprosy was an umbrella term, it, it doesn't just mean that what we typically think of medically as leprosy today. Leprosy was a catch-all. It, it was any type of skin disease. And so when Luke says he was covered with leprosy, and actually in the Greek, it's full of leprosy. 
He's implying that this guy is not, he's not the eczema, which could also be kind of clumped under that umbrella. This guy is full out. He's completely covered. His life has been ravaged. He has the disease that we think of leprosy today. And, and if that was the case, then what that meant was that religious leaders, really religious people, avoided this guy like it was their job. He was unclean. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were so committed to staying clean that if a man or a woman with leprosy was even standing downwind and they could smell them, they, they would walk an entire town length to avoid even smelling these people. They were so committed to avoiding them that even their stench was offensive. If you had leprosy, because some of them were socially contagious disease, because remember it's a catch-all, you were oftentimes excluded from community, which meant if you were a 13-year-old and you came down with leprosy, your family kicked you out of your home and you never saw them again. The only place that you had for family was other lepers. So this is really bold. This guy with leprosy hears about Jesus. He walks in and he lays down on the ground and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And verse 13, it says, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. This is incredible. I don't know how long this guy had had leprosy, but I do know that that same time period was also the same time period that he had not been touched. You didn't give hugs to people with leprosy. People with leprosy didn't know what it was like to have a hand on the shoulder or someone just to sit beside them in close proximity with their shoulder pressed up against their shoulder. They didn't know what it was like to feel physical touch because no one even got close to them. And yet, what does Jesus do when this man falls in front of him? Jesus reaches out his hand and it says that he touches him. And not only that, it says that Jesus, after touching him, cleansing him, says, oh, by the way, go to the priest. And he says, show yourself as a testimony, sacrifices for Moses. He makes this really random statement that for many of us, we, we, we don't catch it. What he's pointing to there is that, hey, when you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were cut off from community. And in this day and age, the priest, he is the public health inspector. That was one of the jobs of being the priest. And so a priest was the person who would give you that bill of health, who would say, you've been healed, you are safe, you are okay to go back into community. So Jesus' compassion doesn't just end with him physically touching him, which was incredible. Jesus' compassion extends even to this man's social circles because he recognizes if this man walks back up to his family, if he doesn't have the paperwork to prove that he's been healed, his family could still shut him they could still push him away jesus cares not just about his physical well-being jesus even cares about this man's relational connections with other people too this is why he says go to the priest because they're the public health inspectors they're the one who are going to give you the paperwork to say you're okay to go back to normal life what i love about this story is in these two different pictures kind of shake us if we're being honest if we're willing to lean into this as a picture of prayer one, and first of all, is who Jesus is. For many of us, we can't imagine going up to God with that kind of desperation and that kind of heart cry. We, we picture God in our head as angry. We picture God in our head as distant. He doesn't even want to hear from us. You need to go talk to someone who will then go talk to him. 
You can't even imagine a God who would want to hear your voice. And yet, this is what Jesus demonstrates. Jesus, God in flesh, shows us that he expects us. He desires us to come. And what does he do when we step into his presence when we pray? He shows compassion. He doesn't show condemnation. He doesn't remind us of all the bad things we've done. He touches this man who had been rejected by everyone in his life. That when you pray, the picture that you have of God, if he's angry, if he's belligerent, if he doesn't care about you, that is not who he is. That is some distortion of what you've been shown or what you've heard. But that's not what I see in this passage. I see a God who is approachable, who's even interruptible. And for those who are parents in this room, you get that. You wouldn't want your child to talk to someone who then comes and talks to you. I don't want my seven-year-old walking in the room, going through motions and repeating certain phrases as if I'm some kind of decoder box she has to unlock to get what she wants from me. I want her to come in, to climb on my lap, and to say, Daddy, and to share her heart with me, which is exactly what we see this guy do. He runs up, and he falls on the ground in front of Jesus, and he says, Jesus, and he pours out his heart. He's like, I know you can make me clean. I know you can heal me. And if you're willing, would you do that? This man understands the person and the power that he's in the presence of. And simultaneously, simultaneously, he has this passion and this humility to say, God, I need you. And that last letter in this story of T talking to God, you and I can have that type of prayer life. You and I can have that type of spiritual life. And just because you don't have it right now does not mean you cannot have it. For some of us, I would encourage you that maybe your tea and talking to God is because you're spiritually searching and your only picture of God your entire life has been some distant, angry, white-bearded kind of Zeus in the sky ready to zap you with a lightning bolt the moment you cross the yellow line. And that for you, maybe it's, being willing to step back and say, maybe I've missed something about who God is. Or for some of us, maybe your next step in the talking to God is to say, okay, I know I, I have a Christian faith. I know I'm Christian, but I want, I hunger for that. I want that. Then your next step, I would encourage you, is to sign up for the 112. The 112 is something that we do. It's an eight-week course, and its purpose is to equip you, to encourage you, to inspire you, to experience more from the Christian faith that you have. Whether you've been walking in that faith for one day or you've been walking in that faith as long as you can remember, that there is more to your faith, that there is more for you in your faith than what you've experienced. This is not a story for me. You need to realize I ain't got time to get into it today, but if I had time, I'd start to unpack the last year of my life and what I've walked through and the struggle and the pain. Last year was the hardest year of my life. There were days when I would wake up where I was not sure if I had enough strength to go on one more day. There were days when I would wake up where I didn't want to get out of the bed because of the pressure that weighed on me or the depression that I was walking through. But I'm telling you that 
like that leper, I would wake up in the mornings and I would pour out my heart to God. And throughout the day, what I had found through every single one of those moments is that while I might not always leave those times with him healed, I might not always leave those times with him with an answer that I'm looking for. I would always leave my time with him whole. I would always leave my time with him feeling peace. I would always leave my time with him feeling joy, joy in the midst of my pain, peace in the midst of my chaos, like a sense of strength in the midst of my weakness. I have seen this. This is not a story for me. This is not something that I'm telling you. This is something that I walked. This was the steps that I took in 2018. That there is more to the Christian faith And if you have rejected the Christian faith because there wasn't enough, then I would humbly say to you, you did not reject the Christian faith. You rejected some person's poor, kind of ugly copy of religion. Because there is more. And I'm living it out. And that God's desire for us is not that we would wake up and drag ourselves out of the bed and barely make it through the day and completely live drained and wake up thinking, well, maybe today I'm going to hit a guy and he's going to cling to the top of my car. That there is a desire that he has for us to even in the midst of a life filled with emptiness to still have fullness, to still being be filled even in the midst of being drained. That there is a joy that you and I can have in the midst of our sorrows. And there's a peace that you and I can experience in the midst of our chaos. And that it starts and it is regularly built with us taking a step back, engaging relationally, serving and pouring out and talking to God. And if we do that, then whether it's one or a dozen relational vampires, we'll find that there's plenty inside of us to be able to handle and to navigate the onslaught that often comes with people who are draining. Let's pray.